This program is brought to you by FortuneCopilot.com. FortuneCopilot.com helps smart business owners like you discover world-leading ideas which will transform your business. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Business, UK's premier program for current and future entrepreneurs. I'm Alan Coote. On the program this week, PayPal have announced that UK businesses have tripled their sales abroad in 2016. Now, it seems that despite our impending divorce from the EU, we are still loved across the world. We talked to the managing director of PayPal in the UK to discover how this remarkable turn of fortune has been achieved and if it is set to continue. Are you the ambitious type? Do you want to reach your full potential at work? Now, picking the moment to step up the career ladder is fraught with danger, though. Move before you're really ready and it will end in disaster. Hold on too long and it could be, of course, too late for you. Luckily, there's a new book out which aims to help you. We speak to its author very shortly. Josh Alex from FortuneCopilot.com is here. Josh, what do you have this week? How good is the name of your business? Even the world's biggest companies make a habit of changing their mind about what to call themselves, but why? What makes a great name? And we have news of research which reveals that we're happier hearing old stories rather than new ones. Now this has wide implications for businesses and even for you if you want to appear interesting at a dinner party. The full details are coming up. PayPal have just released new data which shows how British online exports performed in 2016. Now, it's the first time they've released such figures. The data reveals that small businesses have seen their online sales treble in comparison with the same period last year. Joining us on the line is Managing Director of PayPal UK, Mark Brandt. Now, Mark, what data have you collected to show this and what is it really telling us? We've looked into our databases. We've got masses of transactional data. And what we've seen, that so we're seeing that small businesses, UK small businesses, are selling a lot more overseas in the uh, the second half of 2016 compared to the first half of 2016. In fact, almost a threefold increase in, uh, in cross-border sales for UK businesses. And how are you tracking that then? Because we process the payments for tens of thousands of businesses across the UK, we can see where those transactions are coming from and the volume of those transactions. Um, and so we're able to aggregate all that data and look for trends and drill down into specific sectors and see where that growth's coming from. And what the data is showing us is that UK small businesses in the second half of 2016, they were selling cross-border, selling to overseas consumers three times as much as they were in the, uh, the first part of 2016. So um, from a year-on-year perspective, in January to, to June 2016, we were seeing a 10% increase in cross-border sales. In the second half of the year, it was a 34% increase. Do you know what it is? Or is it products or services, a particular product, particular service? I think it's a whole range of things. We look predominantly across the retail sector, and within the retail sector, we're seeing that particularly fashion and sports goods are doing particularly well. In terms of what's driving that, we think there's a combination of things. Obviously, the uh, the devaluation of the pound has some benefit fix it makes uk goods look cheaper but also think uk retailers are making a real effort to open their doors to business from overseas they've been looking at what it needs to what they need to do to to make that german consumer for example more likely to complete a purchase with them and it's not just about price They've been looking at using local language, local shipping methods and payment methods, which are familiar to overseas consumers as well. Are you saying at least in part that this is down to the UK's decision to leave the EU? 
I think it, it would be unfair to say that there, there isn't a part of that because definitely price does play a big part in the uh, in the buying process. Equally, I think it's important to recognise that UK businesses are making a real effort to uh, to open their doors to overseas consumers. So price and Brexit and foreign foreign currency changes that makes a difference, but I don't think that's that's all of it. Any early indications from 2017 that we're heading in the same direction? We can only hope so. It's not our place to comment on on the future, but certainly what we are here to do is to to keep educating our, our customers and our merchants, providing them with tools to enable them to to capitalise on growth opportunities, be them cross border or domestic. Um, and we've got some great examples of of what businesses are doing, be it uh, opening language-specific sites. For example, there's a, a great little family-run shoe business up in uh, up on the edge of the Peak District that last year opened a German-specific site um, and is seeing a surge in sales from Germany. And we'll be encouraging other merchants to look at their potential target markets and thinking about how they localise their offering so that they can capitalise on that. So all of this is obviously good news for PayPal because you're, you're making a little bit on every single transaction. What are you doing to help these businesses? Well, the kind of things we're, we're doing, aside from the products, the, the traditional kind of payment processing products we offer, we put together various portals that provide advice on how to make it easier for your um, overseas consumers to transact with you, pointing people in the direction of services to to localize their websites, local language. We also have this product called PayPal Working Capital, which enables businesses to effectively take an advance on their PayPal sales, and they can then invest that that money in purchasing more stock or investing in new equipment or in investing in services that, you know, for example, translation services for their websites. So what you're seeing, Mark, is that for businesses to make the most of their export opportunity, they should be internationalizing their website? I think that's, I think you've hit the nail on the head. So encouraging British businesses to continue to put themselves in the shoes of overseas consumers and asking themselves if if they landed on their website, would they make a purchase from them? Do they feel comfortable making the transaction? And making sure, to your point, they've, they've either localized or internationalized, and they've thought about the culture into which they're selling and the uh, the local conditions that they uh, they need to adapt to. Now, you're relatively new in the role that you've got as, as the head of PayPal in the UK. What have you got in the pipeline? And what changes uh, are you have you earmarked, the things that you'd like to achieve whilst you're in this role? As I said, the one thing I'm particularly excited about is paper working capital and what that does for small businesses. We we operate and work with businesses of all sizes, from the very large enterprise businesses down to kitchen table operations. And paper working capital for me is just a great way of enabling businesses to invest in their growth through using a, a PayPal product that, that both advances cash to them, but also enables them to uh, to pay that back via their um, their takings from PayPal. And the mechanics of that is that what you have to have a certain amount of turnover before you qualify for it? You have to have a certain amount of trading history with PayPal before you qualify for it. But we uh, it, we make it a very simple process for merchants with an established history with us to start uh, to start using PayPal working capital and taking that cash out, getting that cash in advance so that they can invest. It's fair to say that PayPal and others have revolutionized online tra- transactions over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. Where do you see this being in the next maybe five or ten years? What changes are there likely to be? I think probably the the biggest trend that we can all see, which will which will further continue, is the use of mobile devices. Um, we've seen a, a big shift in um, the way people are interacting, and mobile is at, is at the heart of that. And so we'll continue to evolve our services to become more and more mobile friendly. 
and the micropayment side of things. Are you going to be playing a part in that? We play a part in all, all payments, big and small. Micropayments are a significant part of our business now. Um, and um, you will continue to look at providing services that that satisfy the needs of merchants, whether they need very, lots of very small small payments or, um, or larger payments. Are we going to see a, a PayPal equivalent to Apple Pay? Yeah, Apple Pay is a, is a great service. We already provide the ability for people to make transactions quickly and simply across a whole range of devices, not just Apple devices. So, uh, and Apple are a partner of ours as well. Very good answer, Mark. I like that one. Very diplomatically put as well. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for that. And uh, well, let's hope that uh, you know what you've seen so far in 2016 continues well into 2017 and beyond. And we are actually making some inroads with international business. It's been a pleasure having you on the line. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much, Alan. That's Mark Brandt, the Managing Director of PayPal UK. One of the consistent themes that we often cover on this show and many many people have said that you need a story either it's the founder's story it's the business story or maybe even when you're standing up to give a talk or something like that start with a story so stories and business are very very closely connected aren't they yeah there's something human about uh, a good story isn't there right back to aristotle used to tell stories he was the guy that worked out the story is best told in three acts the story arc the story arc if you like that yes often studied by a-level students indeed but what makes a good story that's the question and there was some research done recently into this area and they asked participants to watch a short video and then narrate that video to a listener in a different room And some listeners had already watched the videos, but others hadn't. And the researchers expected to get more engagement from the listeners who hadn't seen the video. But they were wrong. People who had already watched the video and knew the story enjoyed hearing it more than the listeners who hadn't seen the video. Okay, I want to recap that. So what you're saying here is that if you've heard the story before, you're more likely to enjoy it the second time. It seems so, which I personally find absolutely fantastic because now every time me and my other half, we go out for like a, a bite to eat or something like that and it gets to dessert and we, we look at each other, oh, have we got room for dessert? And the answer is always yes. Have you ever noticed there's always room for dessert, there no matter is. how big the main meal is? <laughs> and there's a scientific reason for that. And I always like to immediately launch into the scientific reason for that. And she's heard the story hundreds of times now and it doesn't matter any time dessert is brought up I'll say oh you know why you've always got room for dessert and she complains that she keeps having to hear this story but what this research suggests is actually she should be enjoying the story more and more every time she hears it let's test this out I don't know the story about why you always have room for dessert well I won't bore you with the full story but needless (laughs) to say it's something called sensory specific satiety if you want any more information on that google it (laughs) <laughs> okay all right well i haven't heard that before i was i was interested I, i'm guessing that next week when you cover it then i'll be more interested we'll be more engaged and that is the point of this research is proper research done isn't it yeah it's recent research published in psychological science the journal and the take-home message the message that the researchers end with i think is quite an important one and they say that the novelty of experience may make stories more interesting to hear but it also makes them more difficult to tell. And it's this fact that creates a conundrum for speakers. If they tell familiar stories, they're more likely to be understood, but less likely to be interesting. And if they tell novel stories, they're more likely to be interesting, but less likely to be understood. So from this, what can we say that the best speakers do? 
Well, you have to strike a balance, a careful balance, between these two outcomes by telling stories that are familiar enough to be understood, but novel enough to be worth understanding. And that is the key to being a good speaker, and it's it's a dark art. I'm definitely going to use this the next time that I'm putting a little talk together. No question about it. Very interesting indeed. Now, what was your after-dinner talk on? Oh, sensory-specific satiety. I couldn't spell it for you. <laughs> I'll Google it. Yes. This programme is brought to you by FortuneCopilot.com. FortuneCopilot.com helps smart business owners like you discover world-leading ideas which will transform your business. You're listening to Let's Talk Business, the UK's premier programme for current and future entrepreneurs. I'm Alan Coote. Still to come this week, are you the ambitious type? Do you want to reach your full potential? Now, picking your moment to step up the career ladder is fraught with danger. Move before you're really ready and it will inevitably end in disaster. Hold on and you could be, of course, too late and miss your chance. Now, luckily, there's a book out which aims to help you. We speak to its author shortly. Josh Alex from FortuneCopilot.com is here with this week's Business Insight. What have you got? How good is the name of your business? Even the world's biggest companies make a habit of changing their mind about what to call themselves. But why? What makes a great name? Great. All of that is still to come. High-flying professionals are committing career suicide by rushing into a promotion too quickly, experts have warned. While having ambition is essential to succeed, so is knowing exactly when is the right time to seek that career move. A new practical business guide has been published called Thrive, How to Achieve and Sustain High-Level Career Success. is written by Dean Williams and he joins us on the line now. Dean, you say this book offers a career blueprint, but before we get there, who is this book actually for? So I, I would call it a practical business guide for ambitious professionals that are interested in furthering their careers, probably at a top senior level, Alan. Why would you write that now? What's different than before? I mean, my profession is I've been doing for 16 years. So that's that involves an executive coach that involves a lot of coaching, a lot of sessions that have happened over that period of time. And when I was kind of getting my best guess around how many sessions I would have done over the last 10 years, it's probably about 2000 senior coaching sessions. So in that period of time, Alan, there's been an awful lot of people that I would have coached with a topic, if you like, of career development uh, and career coaching sessions. And it's been that really that's that's made me sit down and think, is there a process that I'm following? Is there a formula I can come up with? Is there a science that I can attach to what I do with senior professionals in terms of aiding their, their senior career promotion that I could actually encompass in some kind of book in this case, but use it as something that systematically improve somebody's chances of getting promotion and that's what i've been working on for the last two years so thrive has actually taken two years to write based on all of the knowledge i've gained the assessment of sessions i've had with the people that i coach but actually if i'm honest seeing a lot of them find it very very difficult and when i've tried to understand what are the reasons that they're finding it difficult it's down to the fact they probably haven't developed in a way that's sustainable. And that's a key word that I would use in and throughout the book. I think people who are listening to this will recognise, even senior managers will recognise this, that people get put into positions in a senior role in a company. Very quickly, it becomes obvious that they are operating well out of their depth. 
Yeah. I mean, whose problem is that, I suppose, for a site? Is that the people that promoted them or is that their problem for overstepping and believing they can do something that in reality that they can't? There's two aspects of that and it, it covers both sides of that equation. So the uh, let's go with the organisations first and foremost. I mean, they, they are or can be very guilty sometimes of courting and possibly promoting even talented people when they're not quite ready to do a more senior role. So I do see some of that. And there are there are lots of examples that go flying through my mind around uh, individuals that have been on the receiving end of that. And that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it, it takes somebody very strong as an individual to recognize where they are in their development and say that promotion for me at this moment in time is not for me. There is definitely an organizational slant on this in terms of are they promoting their talent too early? Are they getting blinded by one or two things that that may serve them well in that profession, but but doesn't holistically look at all of the quality that's needed for somebody to step up with that extra degree of responsibility. And I mean, the other side of that that equation is is very much an individual that that happens to be incredibly career ambitious. And I think what the process at, attempts to do, and what I would do naturally as an executive coach, is to ask them some fundamental questions about where the career ambition comes from. So, what is it they are chasing? What is it they are trying to achieve? And if you really do ask people those questions and get them to really think about the answers to those and what's driving them on and driving them forward, in my experience, there are lots of people who, who would recognize themselves that they're not quite ready. Then again, there are a lot of people that would just step forward to try and get a promotion without perhaps doing their, their research on their own readiness to take on that role. All right. Well, let me touch on this then. Imagine I'm coming to you and I yeah. say, Dean, Dean, I'm, I'm massively ambitious. I really want to reach the top of a, a, a PLC. And what is the one question then that you ask me? Well, it's a, it's a challenge really more than a question. So the annulus has in the middle of it, if you can visualize a, uh, almost something that looks like a wheel with certain spokes coming out of it, the, the center point of that wheel is something I refer to as price of entry. And price of entry is a challenge to the individual. So I do get lots of people, and as you can imagine, talk to me about their ambition, the fact they are incredibly ambitious. And price of entry does exactly that. And that's my starting point. It's almost almost my do not pass go until I've had that conversation. So price of entry fundamentally means are you, are you credible at the moment to start to even talk about your career ambition? So if you want to become this CEO of a PLC, the reality is, What's happening in your current role where we are already setting you up for success? For others who demonstrate that they are absolutely ready after that challenge, then we start moving our way through the what I would call the nine core elements within that annulus. All right. Well, consider myself challenged. Dean, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Your pleasure is mine. Thank you, Alan. That's Dean Williams. The book is called Thrive and it is available now for order. Stan and Coop from Let's Talk Business with Josh Alex from FortuneCopilot.com. Josh is a business technology editor there. And you've been itching this week to get, get this piece off your chest. Yeah, this week I want to talk to you about names. Now, names are incredibly important, as you know. And uh, what name we give something can have a huge effect on how it's perceived. Anything from brand names, company names, first names, even the names that we assign objects Now, the name we assign to something is such a big decision, in fact, that even the world's biggest companies aren't afraid to change their minds about their names if they think they can improve it. So, just to kick us off, let's play a little game. I'm going to give you the old name or the originally proposed name for a company, 
and I want to see if you can guess what the actual company is now. All right, okay. Okay, it's got, a, yeah. got the premise. <clears throat> I feel as though normally we'd have some music that goes along with this to, to increase the tension. However, seeing that I don't have any lined up, let's just do it. Okay, so Dimension 6. Dimension 6. Uh, can you just give me a little clue, an era, maybe? How, how uh, they are a sports equipment manufacturer. Oh, okay. Um, Adidas. No, the answer's Nike. Wow, Nike. Yeah, originally they were going to be called Dimension 6, but uh, last minute they decided to call themselves Nike. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't work, does it? It's funny that. Go on. Yeah. Okay, next one, Back Rub. <laughs> okay, that has to be Body Shop. No, actually Google. Google no was way. In the development stage of Google, it was originally called Backrub. That's at the time you had a thing like Alta Vista, which was a great name for a search engine. And uh, Yahoo were, well, they're still around, aren't they? Still knocking around. But also Yahoo as well. You can't imagine telling someone to Backrub it as opposed to Google it, can you? <laughs> Not, not in the slightest. How did they ever think that that was going to be a good name? Well, luckily they changed it. Okay, one more for you. Uh, Brad's Drink. Brad's Drink. So American drink, it got to be Coca-Cola. It's actually Pepsi. Oh, of course it's the other one. Dash. You were close. Uh, there are plenty of others, though, uh, including Tokyo Chushin Kaigyo. Are you sure you got that right? Absolutely not. No, not at all. Uh, they're, they're now Sony. And my personal favourite is Pete's Super Submarines. Now Pete. Subway. <laughs> <laughs> and these are just a few examples. There are actually many more. The point I'm trying to make is that names are hugely important. The sounds a word make and the way it looks when it's written down on the page can have a certain impact on us. Does it sound good or bad? Light or heavy? Slow or fast? Big or small? And a study from 2007 tested what they call phonetic symbolism and found the sounds of words can convey meaning apart from their actual definitions. And this meaning can bias our perceptions and our judgments. Basically, when we hear a word, our brains instantly make assumptions about what that name represents. In other research, whether the vowel in a word comes from the back of the tongue, like toot, or the front, like tin, impacted associations as well. They conducted a few experiments and found that beer was rated as darker, stronger and heavier when its name used vowels that came from the back of our mouths. They also found, interestingly, that frosh was more effective than frisch as an ice cream name. Frosh. You've made that word up. I haven't. These are the two titles that they use. They found that Frisch was more effective because it signalled a smoother, richer and creamier experience. I can't help thinking that in the entertainment business, people have already sussed this, actually, that a name means quite a lot. Uh, take Jay-Z. Jay-Z, the rapper, right? Real name, Sean Carter. How instantly forgettable. Sean Carter just doesn't work as a rapper, does it? No, it doesn't. I've got another one for you. Aubrey Graham. Aubrey Graham. Are you, what are you saying, Aubrey? Is he an actor or a, a rapper? He's a rapper, it, yeah. Okay, a rapper, okay. Oh, I, I'm struggling because I, rappers aren't actually running off uh, off my tongue. I don't know many rappers. Probably not your era. He's no. a rapper of the moment. His name's Drake. Oh, Drake. Okay, I do know Drake. Yeah. Well, there we go. Real name, Aubrey Graham. It just doesn't work, does it? No, it just doesn't work at all. Aubrey Graham, Sean Carter, two of the most influential rap artists of the 21st century, 
It just doesn't work, does it? So yes, the entertainment business definitely have had this sus for a little while. But from business then, from a business point of view, what does all this mean? Well, what we call something and the words we use to describe something are very important, even down to the vowel sounds in a word, as I explained. So asking your customers for their consent rather than agreement, telling them an entitlement will cease rather than be replaced by, or calling something a penalty rather than a fee, all change the response that you'll receive. A word of warning, though, before rushing off to change your company name or the words in your slogan. I've got a very interesting and quite a funny story that I'm really pleased I managed to shoehorn in here. In 2007, Scotland set about updating its slogan. Now, they got one of Scotland's top advertising agencies on the case, and £125,000 later, they had it. Now, Visit Scotland's chief executive said that their new slogan would, and I quote, help establish Scotland as a must-visit, must-return destination. And their culture minister said it's about showing what a modern, vibrant and successful country Scotland is. So what do you reckon with their £125,000? And uh, they're clearly very pleased with it. What do you reckon the slogan they came up with was? I don't know, but I, I bet actually for the dear listeners in Scotland, they are familiar with this. I, I don't know. i got no idea what they would come up with. Welcome to Scotland. <laughs> that was it that was it yeah it's a funny story so oh dear i think we should take it uh, as a stark reminder that whilst having the right name and using the right words can have a huge impact sometimes we can overthink it i can see that written on a sign as you're going up the a1 welcome to scotland brilliant absolutely brilliant how much did that cost them to find that a hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds and scotland's uh, top advertising agency on the case as well that's a good rate of pay if you can get it. 41 and a bit, 41 and a half thousand pounds a word. What I quite like about this is I'm sure in the brief, someone from the Scottish government was saying, oh, so we re- we want a new slogan to welcome people to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you can do it? And I imagine somebody in the corner of the boardroom quickly, oh, welcome to Scotland. That's a good one. That is pure, pure genius. That is. I really, really love that one. Thank you very much, Josh. Now, what's happening on fortunecopilot.com? Tons is happening on fortunecopilot.com. We're talking a lot about what we call our three main tools. We've got uh, we've got data, we've got technology, and we've got the behavioural side of business. And we like to think of these as our tools, and these are our three tools that we can use to solve most, if not pretty much all, of our business issues in one form or another by adopting one or a multitude of these tools. We can solve all of our problems. There might be a little screwdriver you need there, a little other tool that you need there, but these are the three main ones. And these are the three areas that we talk about most on Fortune Copilot. So like the, your, your multi-tools, really, aren't they? These are. There's three multi-tools for every single job. These are the three that you need to know about. And they are data, the behavioural side of business and technology. I see where you're going with that. Absolutely fantastic. FortuneCopilot.com is where you can find Josh and all of the other bits that he's done over the past few weeks on Let's Talk Business. And I know he's itching with some news, but we can't give you the news. We cannot give you any news whatsoever about FortuneCopilot.com, can we? We can't. No. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Not we'll this work. week. Not this week. All right. Dear listener, you have to tune in next week 
and all will be revealed. It's been a great show. Thank you very much for being with us. The pleasure has been all ours, as always. Thank you for all your contributions as well over the past few weeks. We will actually get round to covering a few of those on air and uh, keep them coming, won't you? We're on Twitter at LTB Show. On Twitter at LTB Show. Heading over to our website, you'll find a wealth of ideas, which is Let's Talk Business Online.com. And I think we've got at least four years worth of uh, great content up there. Let's Talk Business Online.com is where you need to go. Just type in Let's Talk Business to any search engine, and you will also find the podcast. And we podcast the program every single week. So if you did miss some of it, it will be available online as well. Is that enough ways to get in contact with us and to make sure that your business is running smoothly? It probably is, at least for this week as well. I'm Alan Cooch. You can find me on Twitter at the Alan Cooch. This program was edited by Sean Burns, and it's been a monogram media production. We will see you next time. This program was brought to you by FortuneCopilot.com. FortuneCopilot.com helps smart business owners like you discover world-leading ideas which will transform your business.